Skillful writers are careful to avoid unnecessary repetition in their writings. English teachers are known to scratch in the margin of a term paper, redundant. And by that they mean that the student has used too many words to make a point, or has said something unnecessary in his or her paper. And one of the most obvious types of redundancy is when a writer unnecessarily repeats information. But it's not only English teachers who bristle at unnecessary repetition in communication, is it? I would suspect in your family somewhere you've heard the words, I heard you the first time, you don't need to repeat it. Or something along the lines of, you keep saying that. It's a bit irritating to us when someone continues to repeat the same idea. For the most part, we judge unnecessary speech to be unnecessary, if not downright annoying. You know what I mean. But I think you also know that there are times when the repetition of a message is very welcome, particularly in times of crisis. I have seen athletes who would love to roll their eyes at a coach's repeated instructions in practice. I've seen it. I've been there probably too, but I've seen them fix their wide eyes on that same coach with intense concentration as he says the same things he said in practice. What's the difference? Right now it's a timeout and the game is on the line. They've heard it all before, but they're really drinking it in. I can still see the eyes of Beth locked into mine as I talked her through the most intense labor pains of childbirth, as if I knew anything about it. But they were, you know, they told me what to say, and it helped. And I, I, can, I can see her eyes locked into mine as I said the things that had been said many, many times before. But now we were in an intense situation. She wanted to hear it. She needed it. I've seen people cling tenaciously to the familiar words of Scripture when death is in the room. Words they might sleep through in church to hear over and over again, but when death is in the room, they lock in and they want to hear it. I have wept. I have wept at reading the familiar verses of God's Word sent to me in notes by people at times of grief and heartache. There are times repeated words are irritating, but there are times when repeated words are life and they are hope. And Exodus chapter 6 is one of those times. And we need to understand that. Beside the genealogy inserted in the center of this section, there is hardly a word in this entire chapter that has not already been expressed in the book of Exodus. And I can just see some of my English teachers writing in the margin, redundant, 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 all the way through. But we have got to understand that this is crisis mode right now. We must understand the reason for this repetitiveness is not so that we, the readers, get a review of the material. The reason is that Moses is in crisis 
Everything is falling apart in his life. He has obeyed God by taking God's message to Pharaoh. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And what was the result? Pharaoh rejects God's command. Moses was prepared for that, chapter 4 and verse 21. He knew that was coming. What he did not count on was that Pharaoh responded by heightening the oppression of the Israelites. No more straw, same quota of bricks. That wasn't part of the plan as far as Moses was concerned. And what Moses certainly did not count on was these Israelites who had received him as deliverer in chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, now find him again and come with a very different response. Verse 19 of chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, this is desperate times. The mission is falling apart, and Moses turns in panic to God. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So what does God do here? Does he introduce a whole bunch of new concepts to Moses? No. What he does is he locks eyes, so to speak, and he repeats the core message over and over again. And in the midst of this crisis, these words prove life and hope for Moses. We see God's reassurances beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. Chapter 3, verse 20, burning bush. Same message. Says it again. Verse 2, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. Burning bush. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. Same message. The God who is there. The God who is with Israel. The God who will fulfill his promises to Abraham. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Moses has heard this before. He needs to hear it again. He needs the assurance. It's crisis mode. Listen, I am the Lord, says God. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What does that mean? He is the same God who promised to bless the offspring of Abraham. It says also that God presented himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai, not as Yahweh, Lord, translated here. The name Yahweh was used in the days of the patriarchs, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7. That name was known. It's not that he's introducing a brand new name. Even pagan gods were given multiple names, each signifying a distinct aspect of their influence. And that is the point here. God 
did nothing in the days of the patriarchs like he is about to do in Egypt with Israel. And so under the name El Shaddai, it's difficult to know exactly what it means, but God Almighty, under that name, El Shaddai, God chose the patriarchs, God blessed the patriarchs, and God made them fruitful. But God is going to do something unprecedented. Israel will experience the presence of God in a way no patriarch ever did. It should cause Moses to tingle all over. I am is with you. But as God speaks, Moses is building up excuses. Reasons to get out of this situation. These are bad, bad circumstances. But God gives his promise. I am with you. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Remember this? Remember my promise to give them the land? And we can almost hear Moses thinking, Canaan? How can you think about Canaan right now? We've got trouble right here in River City. This is bad news. And you're talking about Canaan? We are being killed by our Egyptian overlords. What does God say? Moses, lock in here. Listen. I promise to give the land of Canaan to the offspring of Abraham. I promised that directly to him in word. I repeated that promise to his son Isaac, and I repeated that promise to his son Jacob, and I will keep my promise. We've heard it before. We've heard this all the way through the book of Genesis, over and over again. This land is your land. I will give it to you. And the repetition just continues at verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. That repeats chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Burning bush once again. I see. I see the misery. I understand. Verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. We have deliverance here. Moses is to repeat the repeated message of God to Israel. He's to tell Israel that God has determined to deliver her from Egyptian bondage. What is more, not only deliverance, but adoption. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, Israel's already God's people, right? But God would uniquely call them out of Egypt in order to form the Israelites into a nation, a holy nation of priests to the other nations of the world, a uniquely possessed nation. And so when Israel stands on the other side of the Red Sea, and when Israel someday in the future stands at the foot of Mount Sinai, she will know that God is her God. That Yahweh, the great I Am, is with her and has redeemed her and has adopted her as His own nation. 
The next step in God's redemptive plan is verse 8. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Deliverance, adoption, a land. Is this news? There's nothing new here at all. God already made this promise to Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3 and verse 17. God has determined his plan. He has reinforced Moses' faith with strong repetition, and it is now time for Moses to take this very message and to strengthen his fellow Israelites with it. Verse 9, Moses reported all this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. From our standpoint, we respond, Israel, lift up your eyes. Your deliverance is at hand. It's coming. Just be patient. But rather than taking courage in the promises of God, the Israelites cave in to the discouragement of their circumstances. Their spirit is weakened. It is beat down. And they choose to filter, and hear me on this, they choose to filter their vision of God through their circumstances. They filter their vision of God through their circumstances rather than filtering their circumstances through their vision of God. It's a battle that we deal with every day of our lives. How often we do this very thing to filter our vision of God through the circumstances and to see if God is really who our circumstances dictate that He is. If you are God's child, if you have come to know Him through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God promises that every circumstance of your life is working to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. God promises that He will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. And that every ounce of suffering is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. A glory that will far outweigh the suffering that we endure. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. God promises that He is preparing a place for us to live in His presence. John chapter 14 and verse 2. How can we read the promises of God in Scripture and not say, lift up your heads, Christians, your deliverance draws near. Yet we are so prone, aren't we, to set all of those promises aside because the circumstances do not commend them to us at the moment. It seems that the sky is falling. And the promises of God go dark. And we do exactly what Israel's doing. Now it was no picnic for Israel. This is tough. This is a hard situation. But they are filtering God through their circumstances and leaving off all of His promises. And I think there's really only one response that is appropriate as we sense that we are doing the same, and that is repentance. To know that we must not despise the promises of God. Well, God sends Moses back to the Israelites. He sends him also back to Pharaoh in verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. 
But Moses said to the Lord, I mean, he sees this as absolutely insane. And he doesn't really mind telling God that he sees it as insane in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips, with uncircumcised lips, literally. The idea is my, my, my speech is unanointed. I'm not capable of delivering this message to the great king Pharaoh. Isn't it kind of nauseating to watch man try to outreason God? It's almost humorous, but it's, it's really upsetting. We all do it. But here's Moses trying to reason with God, trying to outreason God. God, you've got a wrong plan. You don't understand. This isn't going to work. It's as if God is going to stop and say, Wow, you know, Moses, you've really got a good point there. Now that I think about this plan, it's really not the best idea. Let, let's just call this whole thing off, and why don't you just go back to Midian, and, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll just, I don't know, I've got to come up with a different plan here. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Moses has yet to learn that the issue is not who he is, but who God is. And this is the issue that we have to learn in our lives, isn't it? Over and over again, we need this message from God. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. I've called you through these circumstances. I've called you through this trial. This isn't time to run. This is time to trust me. God never chose Moses for his credentials. He chose Moses to serve as an instrument of the divine voice. When God calls you to obey Him, it is always insane to try to reason out of your obligation. What we need to do is just do it and trust Him. Now, I'd like you to look real carefully at the text of Scripture here. If you've got highlight pens, get them out and get ready. But there's something really strange that happens here. As you look carefully at your Bible, at the structure of this text... You'll notice that Moses has a hang-up with his weakness in his speech in verse 12. I speak with uncircumcised lips, the end of verse 12. Now go to verse 28, and we read there, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, verse 28 of chapter 6, And he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why wouldn't Pharaoh listen to me? So we've got Moses objecting here in verse 12, and he's objecting again here in verse 30. What's going on? What's really weird is that between those objections, which I really think is the same setting, you have a genealogy. Now the critics of Scripture have a heyday with this. Somebody was just cutting and pasting and just threw these things in here. One of the reasons being because they love to see cut and paste stuff going on and never read the text and never try to understand what the author is doing here. Let me tell you this. There is no genealogy in Scripture that is ever inserted for no reason. There are several misconceptions that we have about genealogies. Work with me on this for a while because I've found them to be exciting passages of the scriptures. But we've got to set a few things aside to get there. Every genealogy in the Bible is strategically inserted to create a severe case of boredom. 
We've got to throw that misconception out. That's why it's there. For nothing else than to bore us. Another misconception is a little more sophisticated is that the Jews were very concerned to place their identity with Abraham's people. And so if you're a Jew in one of these tribes, this is exciting news to you that you're part of the people of God. This is for the Jews. It's got nothing to do with us Gentiles on this side of the cross. Just skip it. Big mistake. The Bible never inserts a genealogy for the mere purpose of providing a family tree for the Israelites. Never. It does that, certainly. But when you see a genealogy, you should stop and not yawn. You should wake up and ask, what in the world is this doing here? Because every genealogy makes a theological point. They are messages that preach on their own. And this one is no different. Now it is true that all genealogies in the Old Testament here, as well as the New Testament, are pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That is certainly the function of this genealogy in one sense of the term. But this one's doing something a bit differently than just that. The emphasis falls here on Moses and Aaron. But the genealogy is primarily focused, we notice, on Aaron. The agenda seems to be to authenticate the ministry of Aaron. The Aaron who will prove so influential in Israel's departure from Egypt. Who is he? We don't know anything about him. We know how Moses got here. We see how God is working with Moses. But who's this Aaron guy? I mean, he's a brother of Moses, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy. Who is he? The genealogy is here to authenticate the leadership of Moses. Some of the clans that left Egypt are now mentioned beginning at verse 14. And we'll see that the genealogy is doing more than just that, but that in a moment. First of all, we look at verse 13, which is the heading of this genealogy. Verse 13, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So here's Moses, here's Aaron. Anything new there? Nothing in verse 13. This is obvious. But it's the heading of their genealogy. And we start at verse 14. These were the heads of the family. So it comes across as these are the people coming out of Egypt that Moses and Aaron will lead out. We start there in verse 14 with Reuben. Who's he? Firstborn son of Jacob. We then go to verse 15 and we have Simeon and his clan. Secondborn son of Jacob. We then come to verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records. And we have the third son of Jacob and Leah. At this point, the genealogy stops. You would say, well, now we're going to go to son four, son five, son six. It doesn't. It stops right here at son three. So it's setting this up that Levi, setting Levi in the right place, he is the third son of Jacob and Leah. But once it hits Levi, that's the agenda of the genealogy, and it stops there and now goes into a careful tracing of Aaron's line. We see that at verse 16. This is Levi, there is Gershon, There is Kohath, there is Merari, there are the sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel, Kohath, lived 133 years. The sons of Merari are Mali and Mushi, 
Not too many people take their kids' names from that one. <laughs> Mushy, that'd be a great name, wouldn't it? Maybe I pronounce it wrong, I don't know. But these are the clans of Levi according to their records. Now we read that Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed. Kind of scary to us, and it should be, but this is prior to the laws of marriage. Who bore him Aaron and Moses? So Aaron and Moses again play prominently in this, and as is true with genealogies, when they stop on a family and when they mention a woman, there's a unique reason. This woman is mentioned because she is the mother of Aaron and Moses, and they are the primary people here. And the genealogy continues there through the sons of Aaron. We note names that are familiar to us as we get down to verse 23. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Then at verse 25, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan, and that's the end of the genealogy. So clearly it's meant to put Moses and Aaron in front of us. Let me draw just quickly these conclusions. The genealogy establishes Moses and Aaron as the sons of Israel. It sets them off in their pivotal role as liberators of Israel. But as we come to verse 26, then, that's made clear as it says, It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was this same Moses and Aaron. So clearly pinpointing them as the leaders of the Exodus. And it functions here very similarly to the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. We have Moses' birth. We have his upbringing, and then we come to this genealogy just before he enters onto the mission of deliverance, full-fledged mission. It's already begun. But in like manner, we have in the book of Luke, Jesus Christ's birth, his upbringing, and then just before he begins full, formally into his mission on earth, a genealogy. And often we would think of that in our Western perspective, you've got to start the book with the genealogy. Well, they, you can, Matthew does, but in Luke it comes a bit later, as it does here with Moses, to say, this is the man. He's part of the messianic strain. I think a th second conclusion we can draw here is that this genealogy is here because every name in it is going to come up again in the Pentateuch. So we're being provided with a connection where we put everybody who will show up. Phineas, in particular, will have a very important role to play, and the genealogy ideally ends with him. Now there are generations that are skipped in this genealogy. The author is putting them together here for a very specific purpose and he points us to the end with Phineas so that we're awake to the name of Phineas and see how he serves the purposes of God, setting us all up for this. Let me say thirdly that I think it prepares us for the Levitical priesthood whose service will be detailed later in this book and for whom the law of God will be provided on Mount Sinai for mediation. I say it in that way. The law is provided for the priests for mediation on the basis of Hebrews 7 and verse 12. That's not the way we generally look at it. The law comes down, God writes it on the stone tablets, then comes up with this priesthood. But as we look at Hebrews 7 and verse 12, it seems to point it even the other direction that the law is really provided to the priesthood to mediate to the families of the earth. 
And I think there is something of a temporary nature then in that law as it is constructed, Hebrews 7.12. Fourthly, inserted as it is right in the middle of Moses Christ's conversation with God, this genealogy shouts at us that God is in control of human history. What does Moses see? He's right in the middle of a tornado of problems. And all he says is, God, we can't be talking about Canaan here. We've got trouble right here. And I'm not the guy to carry this mission forward. And God talks to him and looks him in the eye, so to speak, and gets him through this a bit, and then, boom, here's this genealogy. God is up to something. He has a plan. He is orchestrating history. He knows exactly who Moses is. He knows exactly where Moses is planted in the children of Israel. And he knows exactly what he's doing in Egypt. The genealogy reminds us how foolish it would have been for Moses to abandon his mission. God is the author of history. And he is establishing a priesthood and a sacrificial service in this nation that he is going to bring out and adopt as his own and form at Mount Sinai. This is no time to run. This is a pivotal moment in God's redemptive plan. It's time to shine. God knows it. And this genealogy stands as attestation to the plan of God. But God in His mercy just returns right back to reassuring Moses. Again, I think this is the genealogy. God's not speaking this genealogy to Moses in the middle of the situation. That's the author of Exodus putting it right here. Moses, I believe, putting it right here to make this statement. But now we return to the objection, verses 28 and 29. As God calls Moses to speak to Pharaoh, he says again in verse 30 that he doesn't have the capacities of speech. God then returns to repeated promises and directions. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country, out of his country. You will be like God to Pharaoh. That is, Moses will stand in the place of God, speaking to Pharaoh for God. For all practical purposes, Moses will be God to Pharaoh, which is really the Hebrew text. The word like is supplied here. You will be God to Pharaoh. Obviously not meaning that he becomes God or anything of the sort, but he's going to stand in the stead of God and deliver the truth of God, and for all practical purposes is God. As far as Pharaoh is concerned, and Aaron will be his representative. Now, in an absolute sense, what does this point to? In an absolute sense, it points to Jesus Christ, who would be God in all reality to the world as he came to win our redemption. And in a secondary sense, I think it also points to us and our relationship to a lost world. Moses stood to represent God to Pharaoh, and so God has called us as his representatives to stand before a lost world and to be God to them in the right sense of the term. It's a high calling and it is a high responsibility. But you are going to be as close as some people ever get to God in this world. You, Christian, are God 
to them? Do we speak? Do we show forth the glory of God? Do we hold out hope? Or does our life simply confirm them in their lostness? You are God to this world. As God has called you to represent His name and to call out a people for Himself from the nations who come to embrace Christ as Savior. This is Moses to Pharaoh. This is us to a lost world. But continuing on with words that are again repetitive. Verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. 421. God's already told him that. God simply reiterates that by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God will glorify the power of his name in magnificent Egypt. Hold on to that thought. God will glorify his name. Let us return to it in just a few moments. Middle of verse 4. Then he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. God is setting this up to say to them and to say to us, this is my greatness and my power. And it will come as the world resists The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Takes us back to Pharaoh's word in chapter 5 and verse 2. Who is the Lord? Everyone is going to know very soon. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. That's not there just for our curiosity. That's there to pinpoint the time that these things took place in history and in the history of these men. Crucial events in salvation history often include in Scripture the age of the people involved. That's what's taking place here. So Moses and Aaron, elevated as the deliverers of Israel, set up before us and prepared. How? By repeated promises. Over and over again. And I think in the midst then of crisis, Moses is equipped with the bold assurance that God will glorify his name. What does Pharaoh say to Moses? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God says to Moses, stand back and watch. I'm about to show everybody. Yahweh is no local deity He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the sovereign ruler of all peoples. And He is the author of history. And so we learn from this text of Scripture made pointed once again that God's name will be honored. One way or the other. You can choose the path of judgment or you can choose the path of deliverance, but God's name will be honored. And every one of us here is going to walk one of those paths. God's way and will and glory will be honored in us through pain and judgment, or it will be honored in us through deliverance and glory. The question is, are we on God's side? Are we his people as he called us to himself? For God's people, there is a message here of great hope and courage. 
Because we live in a world that seems to stand as an impregnable fortress against the purposes of God. But the eye of faith sees that this is not the case. The king will reign. He will reign here. He will come. And he will set all in its right course in his time. We have great courage in this. We're reminded in this text, as the hymn writer put it, Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And the people of faith come together as we do here out of this world that's so bent against the purposes of God. And we say by faith, not by sight, He is the ruler yet. God will gain glory for His name. We need to get on His side. There is then for His people this glorious truth, and that's that God's purposes will never take us where His grace does not sustain us. He will never lead us into this world in any circumstance where His grace will not sustain us. Now, understand me. He's not saying, I'm going to make your circumstances easy. That promise He has never made to us anywhere in Scripture. But He will never take you where His grace won't hold you up. Never. Because He never leaves us or forsakes us. He is a God of judgment and power and majesty, but He is as well a God of love and compassion and tenacious loyalty to His people. He will never take you where His grace doesn't sustain you. I've lost some of the details, but heard years ago an illustration that Ravi Zacharias shared from his own life. There was a church sign out on the road that had something like that phrase. God's purpose will never take you where His grace doesn't sustain you. Something like that. I've forgotten the exact words. But he's telling the story and said he drove by that church sign and scoffed and said, Who reads those things? Have you ever said that? (laughs) Sometimes I've seen some of these church signs and says, I hope nobody reads these things. Some of them are embarrassing to the Christian faith and to those who love Christ. But at any rate, he said, who reads that stuff? It meant nothing to him, really. I mean, he knew it was true. But he was on a family outing to a mini golf course. And during the course of golfing, somebody took a club and whipped it backwards and hit his daughter right in the eye. And it was a horrible injury. She was bleeding profusely and they were concerned for her eye. And they put her in a car and tore down the road and guess what they drove by? There's that sign. God's purpose will never take you where His grace doesn't sustain you. And His testimony was that sign meant everything. I think it's a beautiful illustration of the repeated promises of God. What did we say earlier this morning in our memory passage? My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. When we enter trial, what is primarily tested is our faith in the promises and the person of God. 
But there is nothing like a trial, like a crisis, like an intense situation to grab our attention and to focus us on those promises that we have heard over and over and over again in our lives and to say it's real. The promises of God heard again in a time of intensity build our faith. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus who says then that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And trials often make us hungry for those words of divine promise. They are words of life. God provides for His people. God provides for you, if you are His child, the word of life. His promises will sustain you through anything that He takes you. His Word is that to which we cling and that on which we feed. It is the Word of life. The repeated words of truth. Cling to them, hold to them, and in times of crisis know that they are there for our growth. They are there so that we look into the face of God and realize through our experiences, that His words are life. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father. You are infinitely good to us. We thank You for the provision of Your Word. We thank you for its life-sustaining strength. We thank you for the repeated promises that you grant us. We do not deserve this goodness. It's easy for us to even critique and ridicule a person like Moses or the Israelites in the midst of all of this. But God, we do the same thing over and over again. Your word has spoken. The Son has hung on a cross to show us your love. And he has risen from the grave to show us your power over death and sin. And yet we doubt. Forgive us for filtering you through our circumstances rather than our circumstances through our vision of you and your promises. Forgive us. And teach us, Lord, to trust. We do not ask for trials. We don't want to call them down on our head. But Lord, we also ask that you will continue to build our faith and do what is necessary. That we might trust your word as life itself. Thank you for the repeated words of Scripture. For anyone who may not know you as your child has not come to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would do that work in their heart today by your grace and draw each of us to the truth as we ponder these thoughts and seek to grow in our likeness to Christ, whose word is life indeed. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.